Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Collect Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest Media Law headlines. We've got the arrests of protesters at the coronation of King Charles, resolutions in a couple of defamation trials and updates from the USA and India. But first, I want to talk about costs. On the 17th of May 2023, the Court of Appeal issued the cost order in the long-running Banks and Cadwallader case. Journalist Carol Cadwallader has been ordered to pay 60% of Aaron Banks' costs of the trial and one-third of the costs in the Court of Appeal after his partial libel victory on appeal. Cadwallader has already been ordered to pay £35,000 in damages over her claim in a TED talk that Banks told lies about his covert relationship with Russia. This cost order has been widely criticised in the press. The International Press Institute has described the order as a dark day for press freedom and Reporters Without Borders have criticised it as setting a chilling precedent for public interest journalism. Are these criticisms warranted? No. Um, it's the straightforward answer to that. Um, this is all really quite straightforward. Despite the Cadwallader Banks case being the case that just keeps on giving, uh, it seemingly will not go away. Um, this is a straightforward consequence of libeling a person. If you libel a person and then you have no truth defence... You run a Section 4 public interest defence, which partially succeeds because there was a point in time at which the public interest expired or at which one could no longer reasonably believe that publication remained in the public interest because we were, the material being published was defamatory and untrue, um, then... At some point, you're going to have to pay for that. Now, if you lose a case in this country, you pay the costs of the claimant who brought that case. And that's, in my view, perfectly just. Um, There was an alternative here right from the beginning. Carol Cadwallader did not need to run a story for which she had no defense of truth. Or when it became apparent that what she was saying could not be supported adequately by evidence... She could have stopped the story. She could have retracted it. She could have apologized. There are lots of things that she could have done to avoid liability. She chose not to do so. That is her right. She chose to bat on, go all the way to court, and fight the good fight in the name of the public interest, as she saw it. Well, she lost. Not entirely. But she lost enough that she ended up having to pay £35,000 in damages. And because it had dragged on for as long as it had, and subsequently went to appeal, The costs have mounted up. Um, This is not in itself an attack on press freedom, because she was still perfectly free to do this. And there is a very simple solution to all of this. It is one that is known in professions throughout the country and throughout the world. It's called professional indemnity insurance. Um, I I imagine that Carol Cadwallader has a fair amount of this because uh, sensible journalists should do. It's readily available for journalists just as it's readily available for lawyers. I know about it because I know that it's available for lawyers and lawyers have it so as to indemnify them if they are sued for professional negligence. Unlikely that a journalist will be sued for professional negligence. What they are likely to be sued for is defamation. 
I checked the other day, see how much liability insurance is available for journalists to guard against defamation proceedings. And there's plenty of it out there on the market. So um, this is exactly why it exists, to cover the costs of defamation litigation. Um, And because that industry exists, because it exists to support the press, this is manifestly not an attack on press freedom. Yeah, I, I I want to take an opposing view, but but I can't because I agree entirely with Tom, um, which is why I was keen to hear his view first, because I was going to say exactly the same thing that Tom has uh, said. Uh, we on this show are no fans of Aaron Banks or the people that he used to surround himself with. Um, but regardless of that, uh, we are lawyers first and foremost, and this is the way that the law works. And so... I think this is a, uh, a salutary tale in, in many ways. It's uh, the convergence of some very unfortunate uh, events, but I don't see this as a press freedom uh, problem. And likewise, I don't see this as a slap, a, a strategic lawsuit against public participation either, um, because everyone is entitled to their reputation. Uh, and if you're going to attack someone's reputation and you can't defend it on the basis of truth, it's probably best not to attack it in the first place. It also highlights the issue that was flagged up under the old Reynolds defence, which was the predecessor to the defence under Section 4 of Publication in the Public Interest, Um, a a problem that right back in the early 2000s, the solicitor Jonathan Code wrote about with such eloquence, which is the issue that uh, when a public interest defence is run successfully, Claimant loses both their reputation and the case, even though the uh, statement that's published about them is acknowledged to be both defamatory and untrue. Um, This is manifestly a problem for uh, the the notion that the law secures justice for claimants. If there were no redress whatsoever in these circumstances um, for the claimant, then the the law would absolutely be failing to do what it is there to do, which is to protect reputation. Now, maybe, and I would not be at all surprised, the press would like us to simply not have a law of defamation. Um, And maybe one day we will have a debate as to whether reputation uh, is something that ought to be protected at all. Um, but it has been thought to be something worth protecting since at least the 11th century in this country. Um, And on the assumption it continues to be for the reasonably foreseeable future, then and and that we do that via an adversarial legal system which is funded by litigants, then this is the only way in which that can be uh, uh, achieved. And I think it's also worth making the point that... um... Although this is unfortunate that in that you uh, have archetypal characters here of good people versus bad people, um, or at least that's how the debate has, has been has become reduced has become reduced to those sort of caricatures in the popular discussion of this. The reason why this law is so important is because often it's the good people that find themselves at the end of an attack by a uh, press that is hostile to good people and can um, easily side with bad people. Um, These laws are important for everybody. 
And speaking of uh, people who have been subjected to uh, false statements by the press, we have a couple of statements in open court that were read out in the last two weeks in resolution of defamation cases. The first is Campbell and MGN. Uh, This is Lady Colin Campbell, who was a former royal correspondent. She She sued over a article that misquoted her appearance on Good Morning Britain, incorrectly saying that she was defending Jeffrey Epstein's right to rape children. In truth, Campbell appeared on the talk show and said that the offence with which Epstein was charged for and was imprisoned was soliciting prostitution from minors. That is not the same thing as paedophilia. Soliciting prostitution from minors is prostitution. MGN published a correction and apology to Campbell saying we accept that it was entirely wrong to accuse her of having appeared on a programme to defend Jeffrey Epstein or his right to rape children or misquote her. On the same day, a statement was read out in resolution of the defamation case uh, brought by Dinah Rose KC against the Times Media Limited. This case concerned an article published by the Times in November 2022 titled Law Chiefs Rule Against College Head in Gay Row, which falsely claimed that Miss Rose had wrongly claimed she was professionally obliged to take on a same-sex marriage case in the Cayman Islands and had acted recklessly. The Bar Standards Board issued a public statement clarifying that no regulatory action was taken against Miss Rose and that she had acted in accordance with her professional obligations. The Times has apologised to Miss Rose and agreed to pay substantial damages and her legal costs. It's a weird one, the uh, Dinah Rose case, Um, simply because it's one of the worst pieces of journalism that I've heard of in years. Um, uh, How not saying something. Well, yes, but how, I mean, we think, I know we lawyers think a lot of ourselves and that we think, obviously, everybody knows how our work functions. And we don't expect all members of the public to understand the principles of how barristers are assigned cases. But what journalist worth their salt commenting on legal proceedings doesn't understand the cab rank principle? The notion that barristers in this country have to take the next case that comes along. That is their professional obligation. They cannot turn down a case for which they are qualified. Um, And that has been the system underpinning uh, the bar in this country for a very, very long time. How have the journalists not heard of this? Um, Well, I think think the point is they have heard of it, but uh, but the culture of journalism at the moment uh, is one in which truth is secondary to uh, scandal and sensationalism. Uh, I say that as if that's a modern culture. That's that's a culture that's long existed in, in uh, journalism. But again, it speaks to this issue with uh, slaps and the sort of slaps culture and how journalists try and frame uh, defamation law and specifically uh, lawyers who uh, take on cases as being the enemy uh, here, as if uh, lawyers themselves are morally uh, culpable, without a clear appreciation, or sus- without society having a clear appreciation of just what it is lawyers have to do in order to be lawyers. It's not because they sympathise uh, with uh, their claimants; they might not sympathise with them at all. Um, it's that they have to apply the law uh, in accordance with their uh, um, 
obligations, their professional obligations. And this takes the moral question out of it. So then to condemn lawyers for doing their job, which seems to be the current narrative, uh, is not only wrong, but actually morally reprehensible on the journalist's part, because it's part of a, a, a mechanism at the moment, a narrative at the moment, in which lawyers are constantly castigated as bad guys. And this has real world consequences for lawyers, particularly human rights lawyers at the moment, uh, who are being attacked even in Parliament. I'm saying even in Parliament as if I expect politicians to be uh, the adults in the room when clearly they're not. Absolutely right. Moving away then from defamation and on to freedom of expression as it relates to protest law, 64 protesters from the anti-monarchy campaign group Republic were arrested during the coronation of King Charles III. The Met stated that the arrests were for affray, public order offences, breach of the peace and conspiracy to cause a public nuisance. The force claimed its duty to prevent disruption outweighed the right to protest, but is facing growing growing scrutiny over its attitude towards anti-monarchy demonstrators. Since the arrests, only four have been charged, and two of those charged, uh, the charges were for drug offences. The heavy-handed response from the Met has attracted some criticism, uh, and some have gone as far as to call for a repeal of the Public Order Act 2003. The president of the Republic Group has said that it has, in effect, robbed the UK of the right to protest. Do we think the Public Order Act has effectively robbed the UK of the right to protest? Or is it more a, a police issue yes. here? No, no, it's absolutely the, the legislation. Um, and we said this before it came in. We said this is exactly what it would do. Um, anybody who was remotely concerned about the right to protest was hopping mad about this piece of legislation. Uh, and anyone who remains concerned about it is still hopping mad about this piece of legislation. Uh, it entitles the police to largely do whatever they want. Um, entitles the Home Secretary to prescribe largely anything that she wants. Um, and uh, yes, there, there is no effective right to even the most peaceful of protests. Uh, as we have seen, um, there were people arrested in and around the coronation for wearing T-shirts, for having placards, for uh, having Velcro straps to attach their placards to the pole that would um, uh, display the placard on on the basis that police thought that these velcro straps could be used as lock-on devices to enable the protesters to lock themselves onto bits of public infrastructure um, the police seem not to have a tremendously good understanding of how velcro functions uh, if they think that these are lock-on devices um, uh, there was no serious reasonable thought that that's what these were this was the police deciding to remove troublemakers let's be honest this is absolutely what it was uh, there was uh, one person I read of who was uh, a, a pro-monarchy supporter there to cheer on uh, Prince Charles, who was arrested because he just happened to be near people um, who were protesting, and she was removed and missed the coronation. Um, and uh, I just read the other day about a bunch of people who were getting together for a seminar in North London, miles away from the coronation, who were raided by the police uh, on the day of the coronation. Uh, on suspicion of conspiracy to commit some sort of public order offence. doesn't even matter which one it was. I can't remember. I'm sure the police didn't remember. Um, This is all nuts. Um, But it is absolutely, it's the result of the legislation. That legislation is the result of a particular 
climate of authoritarianism, which uh, has been growing steadily in this country, I would argue, over recent years. Um, I think we, one could trace it back quite a long way. One could trace it back to legislation designed to um, prevent effective protests um, that was brought in by the, Luna, the new Labour administration in the mid-2000s when they were facing uh, high levels of protest due to the UK's involvement in Iraq. Um, and then I think back to things like the Serious Organised Crime and Police Act, which was brought in to try to remove the peace protester, the late peace protester, Brian Hoare from Parliament Square. Um, there's, there's been a history of this recently, but it is getting a lot worse. Um, we saw just uh, a couple of years ago the way the police in London particularly are inclined to police uh, peaceful protests when they uh, behaved appallingly at the vigil for Sarah Everard. Um, and we see more such behavior around the coronation. Obviously, it was going to be a time that was politically charged, um, and there was a desire, no doubt, to ensure that there was no possibility whatsoever of any trouble kicking off because there could have, if, if serious trouble had kicked off in central London, no doubt, um, given the number of people present, it could have presented danger to uh, members of the public. That makes sense. Uh, the police would be wary of it, but there's it's, it's one thing being wary of trouble. It's quite another um, to uh, entirely curtail people's right to peaceful protest um, on very, very spurious grounds. Unfortunately, under the new Public Order Act, spuriousness is all the police need. Yeah, and let's not forget the police will have been under enormous political pressure from um, the executive to ensure the coronation uh, went off without hiccups um, because the government of the day needed to be able to point to the coronation as uh, as a as a, a symbol of uh, national unity and pride. So that's very important at the moment for this government, who thinks that the people's priorities are to stop boats uh, rather than to have access to affordable food and housing. So this is a deluded government, just just right there, and that's the slogan, stop the boats, whatever the hell that means. Um, it's driven by a Home Secretary who is terrifying in every single sense of that word. And the ignorance amongst uh, the present government is, is exemplified by the attitude of uh, Lee Anderson, who uh, quizzed uh, the head of the Met mercilessly recently, uh, saying that he was betraying the British public because he allowed, he was allowing disruption to take place uh, outside Parliament. Uh, and when the uh, Met officer pointed out that actually that is simply the right to public protest, uh, Lee Anderson uh, was clueless. Um, so this is a this is a government that's made it very clear that it doesn't want any symbols of disunity, i.e. the way that we actually all feel about this uh, government, uh, to take place uh, not only in a uh, national context, but also an international context, given how well watched the coronation will have been around the world. It's also notable, I think, that um, those that were arrested, the vast majority were let out 
as soon as the coronation was over. And it was simply a ploy to just get them off the street. Note that the um, increased use, and we are seeing significantly increased use now of uh, facial recognition technology, live facial recognition technology by the police, is going to make it a heck of a lot easier for them to identify people that they know to be protesters, peaceful or otherwise, um, in advance of major public events, and they do something like this, simply remove them from the street. Think of a ground. Suspicion of having a backpack. Suspicion of having a backpack that could be used to do something backpackish. Um, put them in a van yeah. for a couple of hours, and, uh, and then, oh my goodness, what a terrible shame. We arrested you. How, how awful. We should not have done that. Yes, you're quite right. We apologize. Now you can go about your business. Now the event is safely over and your protest is pointless. Um, we're going to see more of this. Moving out of, of the UK then and onto the international topics that I want to talk about today, uh, starting with the USA, a New York jury has form, found former US President Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming the author E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. Carroll was awarded $5 million in damages for her action in battery and defamation. The jury found that Trump had defamed Carroll by calling her claims a hoax and a con job. I want to get your thoughts, obviously, on the judgment itself, but specifically Trump's response to the judgment. He's continued to describe Carol as a liar since the judgment was delivered. Are these comments creating new causes of action? I can't speak to New York law on this um, because I'm not an expert in the law relating to that jurisdiction. It is clearly problematic that you have uh, a defendant who has been found liable for defamation and is continuing to repeat the defamatory statement over and over again. If this were the, if this case had happened in England, then notwithstanding that injunctive relief is unusual in libel cases, that would be what I'd be going back to court and asking for. I'd be seeking permanent injunction prohibiting the defendant from repeating the libel um, because it, it's clear that um, the 45th president of the United States um, is intent on repeating statements. It's entirely foreseeable that he would repeat this uh, and that he will continue to repeat it. Um, so if it were in England, I'd be looking for a permanent injunction and that would then have behind it the force of the law relating to contempt. Um, and if that injunction were breached, then you know, you've got contempt proceedings and a range of quasi-criminal sanctions that can then be um, uh, enforced by the court. Whether there is a, a, a similar procedural provision in New York state law, I don't know. I would be surprised if um, in permanent injunctive relief were available in defamation cases given the First Amendment. It strikes me as the sort of thing that the U.S. is likely to be wary of, but I, I, I speak merely spec in speculation um, because it's not something that I'm an expert in. If there is an expert in New York defamation law out there, um, do uh, do tweet us your thoughts on the matter. Yeah, but meanwhile, this all plays to the deluded narrative of Trump supporters that you know there's there's an, a deep state working against the righteous. Donald J. Trump, 
to prevent him from becoming a, a president again. Uh, and that this is a lie constructed along with all other lies from Sandy Hook to everything else uh, that uh, those troubled individuals believe in. It's also a great fundraiser for him, of course, as well. Um, and the more he airs this grievance, the more he's able to fundraise. Uh, it will mm. The amount he'll be able to fundraise from repeating this libel, I would expect, will vastly exceed the amount of damages that he has to pay. But it'd be interesting to see what the... Uh, media's response to this is because, of course, um, Fox, for example, has already had a shot across its bows with the Dominion case, although that case settled. It does show a willingness uh, on the part of claimants and I think also the court to try and stamp out uh, this kind of deliberate peddling of misinformation and disinformation uh, for financial gain on the part of uh, news media. Uh, to retain their their share of the market. The last thing I want to talk about today is the notice issued by a Delhi High Court in India against the BBC seeking its response in a defamation case over a documentary on Indian Prime Minister Modi that questions his leadership over the 2002 Gujarat riots. The documentary India, The Modi Question, focused on Modi's leadership as chief minister of the Western state during the 2002 riots, which led to the death of 1,000 people, most of them Muslims. Activists put the toll at more than twice that. Modi has denied accusations that he did not do enough to stop the riots, and the Supreme Court ordered investigation, found no evidence to prosecute him. The suit was filed on the basis that the documentary casts a slur on the reputation of the country and makes false and defamatory imputations and insinuations against its prime minister, judiciary and criminal justice system. So essentially, the BBC has been accused of defaming India. Um, quite quite a thing to respond to. Obviously, we don't really we don't have the response from the BBC, so it's difficult how much we, we can actually say about it. Um, but what would we see as kind of the BBC's options here? This is a case of a type we we haven't seen in the United Kingdom for a, a long time, because this is essentially an allegation of seditious libel, uh, a libel against the state. Um, that's not been something that we've seen uh, in English law for some time now. It was on the statute books until relatively recently. I think it was 2009 we finally abolished it. Um, in legislation, but it hadn't been used um, for a, a long time before that. Um, what exactly the UK, the BBC's options are, um, it will depend upon intricacies of Indian law, which I'm not an expert in. Um, but I do think that the existence of this case is an opportunity for us in the West to revisit the issue of seditious libel because it does remain on the statute books in a number of Western countries, particularly European countries. Um, And it's something which actually the European Court of Human Rights over the last couple of decades has been okay with in principle. Um, we haven't seen massive backlash against it in uh, the European Court of Human Rights, as one might expect if we're not, one were not an expert. Um, it, it, it's permitted 
in principle because uh, of the Article 10, Paragraph 2, um, power to restrict freedom of expression uh, in, uh, in pursuit of good order and good governance, maintaining, maintaining order and the rights of others. Um, and that is the excuse that that, uh, that arises in the ECHR. Paul, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think with seditious libel, I think it's um, it's acceptable at the level of principle only when the consequences of the seditious act are likely to be extreme, um, either in prospect or, or in actuality. Um, I don't know, ordering people to go and attack the capital for example, you know, just to pick a, an entirely random uh, idea that could possibly never happen. I don't know. Um, but a sitting president uh, inciting an angry mob to go and attack uh, the Capitol building might count, I suppose, as a seditious libel that would be we would be comfortable with. Not that any president would be stupid enough to do it, I'm sure. But it, 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 um, it is the type of thing where... Uh, it could conceivably arise in a, uh, a state of intense political uh, conflict or tension uh, if there is uh, a war on. I don't mean that in the sense that the Daily Mail talks about there being a war on because, you know, there's always a war somewhere. Um, but if there was... Um, so, for example, America has a history of uh, seditious libel uh, claims uh, being successful, although we haven't really seen that, I don't think, since the end of the, the First World War. Um, possibly there could have been some around the, the time of the Second World War. Um, but it is a tricky standard, and it's one that's easily manipulated by a divisive government. Uh, thankfully, we don't have such a divisive government ourselves. Okay, well, I think there's a good place to wrap up. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your excellent insights, as always. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Claire. As ever, follow us on social media and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.